0: We do things a little different around here. So if this is your first time, uh, today is even more diff- different than our normal different. Um, normally, we do a pretty simple format. We do about 30 minutes, minutes of uh, worship and music and then about 30 minutes of digging into God's Word. We're going to switch that up a little bit this morning. I'm going I'm to teach first. Uh, really, I'm not even going to teach this morning. I'm just going to talk a little bit, okay? Because uh, this morning is one of those mornings where... Um, I have a sermon, and in fact I have two sermons typed up, and neither one of them seems satisfactory to my spirit. So uh, we're going to scrap those for this morning, and I just want to talk to you. Is that okay? Uh, I just want to try uh, my best, and this is always a scary thing because I've been back in the office praying for like the last hour straight. I don't know what exactly I'm going to say, Lord, because you're not letting me use this. So uh, I want to just share a little bit of of why this message has been so... Uh, So difficult for me. It didn't appear to be that way at the start. It appeared to me that it was going to be a very simple, clear uh, one of these messages that uh, just allowed us to focus on a central point and and go on. And as I as I worked on it, I did I did the first one earlier in the week. And uh, as I went back to it last night, I usually go to the gym on Saturday nights and I kind of review as I'm uh, as I'm at the gym. And, uh, it just wasn't, it wasn't sitting right. So I got back home and I watched like three episodes of iron chef and I'm, and I'm re <laughs> that's just what I do on Saturday nights. And I, I re kind of redid the whole thing. I thought, wow, may I just kind of start over. It just didn't seem to flow well. I didn't have a different direction necessarily, or a different topic or a different emphasis or a different principle. It was the same principle. I just didn't like the way I was getting to it. And I still don't exactly know how I'm going to get to it. So you keep praying out there. Um, Here's what we've been doing so that I can clarify a little bit why we are where we are. We've been looking at the book of Philippians. If this is your first day with us, here's where we've been. We've been looking at the book of Philippians and not just looking at the book of Philippians for the sake of looking at what's in that letter to the church of Philippi. We've been using the book of Philippians to help us to understand uh, in a general way how we might approach scripture on our own. In our own private reading, how would I approach the book of Philippians? And so what we call that is hermeneutics. In the theological realm. We've been trying to help you a little bit with hermeneutics. How do you approach the study of God's word? And we have approached corporately the book of Philippians in much the same way that we recommend you approach the book of Philippians on your own or any, any book of scripture for that matter. We started broad and we started looking at background information, the who, what, when, where, why stuff. We just looked at the big picture. We went to Acts 16 and we did some preliminary background information. We just tried to get a, a, a focus on the big picture of what is the book of Philippians about. And then we narrowed our focus for about four weeks and we looked at each of the four chapters, but we didn't look very specifically. We just looked at the broad themes. Okay. And we followed the one theme of Christ being central throughout each of the chapters. All right. And so we spent a week on each chapter. Now we're in the process of coming back and we're narrowing our focus a little more and we're looking for specific things that God, as you would be reading at home in on your own time, uh, we're looking for those things that God might just settle our heart on and say, "Sit here for a while." Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Does that happen as you're reading as you're reading scripture? God just prompts you to just meditate and stay stay on a verse for a while. And so for the last couple of weeks we've been doing that. The first week we looked at uh, we looked at why the Philippians were so loved by Paul. What made them so loved by Paul? What what motivated them to be the kind of people that Paul dearly loved them. That Paul poured his heart out in the way he did, like no other church. Uh, last week we looked at Paul and we said, what made Paul so crazy? <laughs> what motivated Paul to be the way he is? Today, uh similar focus, we're back looking at motives. We're back looking at motives, and I want to show you a passage in Philippians chapter two. And for the first time, uh, as you start to grab your Bible, I'm going to tell you something that I don't normally tell you. I do not want you to open to the book of Philippians. OK, I don't want you to look at it. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you here in just a moment, but I just want you to hear it. OK, I want you to hear it and absorb it as, as you're listening. And, I, and I, you'll understand, I don't want you to see it this morning. First off, OK, OK. Um, In chapter 2, there seems to be this great emphasis by the Apostle Paul on unity in the church at Philippi. He loves this church. You've seen this, right? We've spent a good amount of time convincing ourselves and understanding, helping you to understand, that uh, Paul loved this people uniquely. He loved them maybe like no other church. Arguably, some scholars say this was his favorite group of believers. That's not to say they didn't have any of their own issues, however. In fact, the book kind of uh, focuses itself around the common theme of unity. You see, if there was one issue for the church at Philippi, it was that they had a little bit of a struggle with unity. Now, that's not to say they had a bunch of bad people in the church necessarily. They weren't they weren't a church that he felt like he had to rebuke because of a great amount of sin. In fact, even in his most direct rebuke towards unity in these four chapters, in chapter four, he calls out two ladies by name publicly in an open letter That's pretty serious. In the very next verse, he commends them on their work in partnering with him in the gospel. So you see, they they weren't perfect. But you also have to understand uh, they were diligent and ambitious workers for God's glory and the gospel proclamation. They were they were about the work of the kingdom. But every now and then when that happens uh, and you know this. We run into each other. We run headlong into each other and we clash and unity suffers. And perhaps at no other time is it more important to address, to address unity among the body of Christ than when when you have a group of believers who are chasing hard after the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel. You don't want to derail such a good thing. And so I think Paul addresses this not because he's so uh, disheartened with these people, but because he knows that they are doing such good work, he doesn't want anything to get in their way. Chapter two is a lot about how do we get this group of people to unity. How do we get how do we get a church to unify? How do we get a church uh, from uh, how do we keep a church from derailing themselves with a lack of unity? Derailing themselves by a lack of unity. Uh, the guy who taught me the Bible, he said something one time and. I haven't been able to shake it. He said, if you, if you want unity in the church, preach grace. And I hadn't got that for a long time. I'm starting to get it more in my studies this past week. And as I look at chapter two, and as I look at the motivation behind Paul's teaching and how he addressed these people. If you want unity in the church. Teach grace. And here's what this means. It goes back to motive. And we ask a lot of why questions here at Cornerstone. We ask a lot of why questions Uh, behind closed doors in prayer, in our leadership thinking. We ask a lot of why questions, not just result questions, not just immediate result questions. We ask a lot of, okay, but why? What's going to be the pure and the real motive that gets the result for the long term, that gets the that gets the real result? Right. Because we could get we could get a short term result. And we talked about this the last couple of weeks and what motivated Paul, what motivated the Philippians to be so loved by Paul, et etc., et cetera. And, and you remember that it all came back to Christ. Right. It all came back to Christ that we not focus here as a church on, uh, for example, evangelism. If we want you to be great evangelists. Right we're going to teach on evangelism we're going to we're going to help you to grow in your in your uh, understanding of how to do evangelism etc but understand he, here's here's the motive part we realize we realize that if we want you to be diligent ambitious evangelists for the glory of God it's not going to do it just by teaching you about evangelism we have three priorities in our church If you were to look at your bulletin, if you have a bulletin, they're on the back. Uh, The simple, the short. The short version of our purpose statement is that we as a church are here to make a mature disciples. When we when we when we set that as our purpose statement, we understood something very quickly that that that's enough. But it's not it's not extremely clear. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean even further than that to be a maturing disciple? And so we spelled it out a little bit further. And that's where you get the threefold purpose of Cornerstone. We don't believe that this is a unique purpose to our church. We believe it is the purpose for the entire body of Christ. We say it in a, in a specific way, in a unique way here. We say to follow the Lord, feed the sheep, and free the world. But those three realms of relationship, we feel, are not unique to Cornerstone. Let me explain those for just a second, and hopefully I can tie all this together. And then I want to show you, I'm going to show you a verse that... God has not let me walk away from Um, our three priorities. You need to understand are in are in an order of primacy. They're they're in a specific order for a for a very intentional reason. If you look at our priorities, they are all three relational. They are the three broad categories of relation that we all live in as human beings, our relationship to God. And we call that following the Lord. Our relationship to each other as believers, we call that feeding sheep. And our relationship to the lost world, that's everybody outside of the church, that we call freeing the world. We have responsibilities in each one of those areas. As I said, they are prioritized. They are prioritized. Now, again, stay on on the track of thinking of motive with me here for a moment. We believe that one helps the next in proper order. We believe that the one helps the next in proper order. It does not work necessarily the same in reverse. If we teach you, for example, about evangelism for the next six weeks, it does not necessarily mean that you're going to be caused to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Let me say that again. If we teach you extensively for several weeks on evangelism, the the relationship you have to the world, the freeing the world part, if we teach you extensively on that, it does not necessarily mean at the end of that teaching that you will become, uh, that you will grow in your relationship over that time with the Lord. But the converse is necessarily true. If we spend the next six months solely teaching you about God, His character, His holiness, His glory, His mercy, His grace, uh, His justice, His wrath, His patience, His long-suffering, if we spend... All of our time, let's say. Let's exaggerate. If we spend all of our time Sunday after Sunday, life group after life group, children's class after children's class, only teaching you about God and His great love for us and expressing that through Christ, what He does through the Holy Spirit, if we spend all of our time on that, understand that that will necessarily impact the next two relational realms. If you grow in your relationship with God... I have no doubt that he will cause in you a renewed love for the body of Christ, our second priority. If you grow in your relationship with God, if you're growing in your relationship to the body, I have no doubt that you will be convicted and you will be motivated and you will be impassioned with the desire to share what you've learned about God with the world. So overwhelmingly, we seem to just go back to the same things over and over in this church. Focusing on God, focusing on God. And in the last two weeks, if you've been with us, you understand that what we've been saying is, why was, Paul, why was Paul so abandoned to this ministry? Why did he give up everything, count it all as rubbish? I mean, he had attained lofty goals. How could you give up all that? How could you do something so crazy? And we said it was, it was just Jesus. It's what he knew about Christ. It's his great love for Christ. It's the love Christ had for him that, that motivated him to the rest of his life, That motivated him to feed sheep and free the world. What was it about the Philippians? It was the same. It was the same thing. All right. So with that in mind, let me let me read you a passage again. Don't turn to Philippians two. I want you to see something, um, and I want to confess here. Part of my struggle with teaching this message is because every commentary that I would go to to study, nobody sees, or nobody addresses what I can't get past. All right. And and I want to. I say that because uh, anytime somebody says that from the pulpit. You want to take it with a grain of salt, okay? I I just want to tell you right here, okay? I'm not—I can't find anybody else to back me up on this, All right? So you test—you test it with the Holy Spirit here, and you see if this—you see if this resonates with your soul. Amen. That makes sense. All right. Um, In chapter two, we get—we get the awesome example of Jesus Christ, condescending, humiliating himself, humbling himself, taking on flesh. Paul elevates christ 's dissension to earth, becoming human for our sake as this as this superior ultimate example of humility here 's what Paul was doing. the Church of Philippi needed unity. How do you get unity? One of the things you have to do is you have to take pride away from individuals. How do you get pride out of individuals well you, well you you got to make them humble can you can you Teach humility. Can I stand up here and teach you about humility and expect that you will become humble people strictly by the knowledge of humility? I think you understand that it just doesn't work that way. Humility has to be caused. Humility has to be caused by something. There's a motive to humility. There's a motive to humility. Towards the end of chapter 2, he begins to say some things about a guy named Timothy. Timothy was one of Paul's right-hand men. In fact, Paul would write his last letter of his very life to Timothy. He would pass the mantle to Timothy at the end of his life. Timothy was beloved by Paul. He says some very uh, some very strong things about his affection for Paul in many of his letters. Listen to what he says about Timothy here at the end of chapter two. And I want you to think about the heart of Timothy as I read this to you. The heart of Timothy. He's just come off this example that the heart of Christ is not that Christ would be about self, but Christ would be about you, right? Christ gave up his rights, gave up his right to his glory, gave up his right to his, his power, his position, gave up his right to his honor, etc. Willingly, mind you, he gave those things up. So that he might do something for us. Namely come to earth, die on the cross, pay our sin debt, etc. Now coming off of that he goes into Timothy as an example. I think of the same type of attitude. That he's called us at the beginning of chapter 2 to have that attitude in us. attitude that Christ had now the attitude that we're going to see in Timothy. So see, see the heart of Timothy here. Paul wants to send Timothy to the church at Philippi. And this is what he says. But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. Shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition See the heart of Paul. It's just like the heart of Christ. It's not about self. It's about you. But not only is this the heart of Christ and the heart of Paul, we're going to find out now that it's the heart of Timothy. I hope to send to you shortly so I can learn of your condition. And then he says something interesting. He says, in fact, I have no one else. There's no one else around me now. As Paul is writing this in prison, and this is a sad statement, we'll come back to this, this is a whole nother lesson. I have no one else of kindred spirit, literally of the same soul. One soul, literally. He says, I have no one else who's like me. Like me in what way? Here's what he says. Who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. You see the theme here? Not me, you. Not me, you. Not, not myself, You. Paul Paul says, I don't have I don't have many people like that. In fact, I don't have anybody like that. I don't have anybody like that available to send to you. Except Timothy. Except Timothy. So I'm going to send him to you. He's the only one genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, here's the verse. Here's the verse I've been stuck on. Verse 21. For they all seek. These are the people not included in just Timothy's the only one. Everyone else, Paul says, for they all seek their own interests. Okay, not you now, but me. They all seek their own interests, not those of who? You. They seek their own interests, not the interests of you, Philippians. All right, now, this is why I didn't want you to open your Bible, because that's not what it says. So open up Philippians 2. It would make sense that it says that, right? It would make sense that it says, for they all seek after their own interests, not the interests of, what do you expect? It makes sense that they're, if they're not seeking after their own interests, they're seeking after your interests. I don't have anybody like that. Who's going to seek after your interests genuinely like Timothy? Like I would, like Christ has. He says something different here, and I, and I think it, uh, I think it's worth meditating on, okay? I think it's worth meditating on. I think it's worth you, uh, you praying about it over the next couple weeks until we jump back into this topic. Next week we're going to have Lord's Supper. The week after that we're going to have Celebration Sunday with um, all the kids in here. Uh, After that, we're going to come back to this topic of 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 how we build unity in the church, et cetera, and and some of the principles here. But do you see what he says in chapter two, verse twenty one? It doesn't he doesn't say what you logically think he would say. And, And that's what struck me instead of saying they're not concerned about their own interests. They're concerned about your interests. He says of Timothy that he's not concerned about his own interest. He's concerned about, and he skips right over the Philippians. And he says they're concerned about, Timothy's concerned about, whose interest? The interest of Christ. Um, and so here, here's, the, here's the real simple point, and, and I'm going to sort of leave this with you. If I've learned something now that I have two sons, and as they grow and get more and more um, annoying and... Um, troublesome. I've learned something. If you love me, um, you'll love my kids. One thing I know is I'm learning, but I know, I know who truly loves me by the way they treat my kids. Um, Some of you, some of you get that. As annoying as they may be sometimes, as troublesome as they may be sometimes. um, I know when you love me, if you deal with my kids in all their imperfections. You love you love my children. You love me. Um, If you love me, you'll love my children. Is another way of saying that. I think this is what's going on in Timothy's heart. I think this, um, I don't know if Paul realized the implications of this. Uh, when I read passages like this, uh, I thank God that he divinely inspired his word. Because I, earlier in the chapter, Paul says virtually the same thing. But he doesn't say the interest of Christ. He says the interest of others. But now for some reason, he says they're not focused on their own interest. They're focused on the interest of not the Philippians, but but the interests of Christ. And he he skips over, in a sense, the interests of the Philippians. Now it is included in that thought, you understand, the interests of the Philippians. So now we're back to motive. Now we're back to motive. What, What made Timothy worthy of Paul sending him? What made Timothy worthy of Paul saying, he's of one soul with me, I can't come. I'm going to send him. I've got no one else like him who's genuinely concerned about you. I'm going to send him to you shortly so that I might hear back about your condition. I've got no one else like him. In fact, everybody else is concerned about their own interests. This guy is concerned about, well, you know what he's concerned about? He's concerned about whatever Jesus is concerned about. That, my friends, is, is motive. Here's why. You and I, um, we don't have within us, humanly speaking, the capability of love like God loves. Um, for Christ to humble himself, in our great example in chapter 2, for Christ to humble himself, to condescend himself, to come wrap himself in flesh, become fully human while remaining fully God, for him to do that, it took a love that is above our pay grade. You see, he did that. Based on nothing in us. Based solely in his own character and great love. There's a word for it in scripture. There are many different words for love in scripture. The word used to uniquely describe God's love for us is agape. It refers to, and you've heard this before, it refers to unconditional love. Meaning there are no conditions, there are no qualifiers. There's nothing that must be present in order for that love to be shown. You get that? God didn't need us to do anything for him to display his great love that he would that he would come from heaven above That he would descend, become man, die on a cross for us. It's simply and only based on who he is. It has nothing to do with who we are. I've done this before. It's been a while. Some of you have heard me uh, use this illustration before, but maybe it helps us to understand. Think of someone who you love right now. Get get a name in your mind. Think, Think of someone you love. You got that name? All right. Get a second person. Get a second name of someone you love. Go ahead and get a third. Three names of people you love. Okay? Do all three of those people love you? At least like you pretty well. If not, love you back. Um, I've never done that. And someone say, you know what? I thought of one of my enemies. I thought of someone that I really hate, uh, that I really, uh, I really love, but they, they can't stand me. It just, we don't work that way. You see, but God's love, scripture says that while we were yet his enemies, while we were yet opposed to him, we hated him. We rebelled against him. He loved us to the point where he would come to earth, die on a cross to pay our sin debt. You see how that is not based anything has no basis in us. It's solely based on him. We don't have that capability in and of ourselves. We don't have that capability in and of ourselves. And here, here's the problem related to our topic of unity. Here's the problem. When I don't have that ability to love you no matter no matter what's wrong with you, no matter your shortcomings no matter your imperfections, no matter how annoying you might be sometimes, like my children. Okay? You follow me? If we don't have that capability, what happens? We're not going to have the same unity. So I think motive-wise, our only hope is to skip a step. Maybe that's not the best way to put it. But here's our hope. That our great love for our God... Allows us to deal with any imperfections of his children. You tracking with me? I love his children because I love him. I can deal with his people. And I can fight for unity in the church. Even when we collide. Not because I have it in me to love you unconditionally. The true motive, the lasting motive, the only thing that 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 allows us to have the the uh, utopia, if you will, that we are to display in a in a local body of Christ, the only thing that allows us to come together and be unified among great diversity. Which is, by the way, a glimpse of heaven. The only thing that allows that is not my ability to love you. It's not our ability to love one another It's not my ability to not just be selfish and to take your interests over mine. You see, some point that always falls short. We simply don't have the capability to do that on a consistent basis. Here's what here's what does work, though. Here's what will never fail. Here's what will never fall short. You see, as we love each other conditionally, things fall short we drop the ball we we sin we offend we we hurt each other and then unity unity is disturbed it's rippled so we got we got to we got to live this thing out community wise here in the body we've got to live unity out not just between ourselves we've got to involve a third party i think practically speaking this is what verse 21 means in the life of Timothy. We would have thought he'd say he's not just concerned about his own interests, he's concerned about your interests. And that would have made perfect sense. I think there's something here. I, th- I think there's something here with meditating on, thinking on, asking ourselves, even if, even if the interests of others don't compel us, the one thing that should always compel us is our God. The interests of Jesus Christ. Timothy was interested in what Jesus was interested in. Timothy was interested in what Jesus was interested in. Timothy loved the children. He was going to Philippi. And he was going to be genuinely concerned for you Not because he had the ability to love you unconditionally, but because God loved him unconditionally. And he so loved God unconditionally that he was able to overlook and consider the interests of God worthy of being his interests. All right. And I don't know that I've completely said that correctly, but that's where I'm going to leave you. And it may be that as we uh, as we're learning to learn our scriptures, we're learning to track through uh, a letter of Scripture that sometimes, this this may be a good example, sometimes we just have to sit on a passage and pray and ask God to teach us, ask the Holy Spirit to give us clarity, to help us to bring in other passages of Scripture that might help clarify the passage of Scripture we're on. Amen? All right. Let's pray, and we're going to focus our hearts Not just on his word, but we're going to focus our hearts on on God. Amen. Because he is the he is the pure motivating factor. What he has done for us. Is the best way to get anything good out of us. Look at him. Grow in your relationship with him. Grow in your relationship with Christ. It will necessarily affect your relationship with the body. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. And we ask that um, as, we, as we meditate on your word, that you would you'd not let us get away from passages that, um, that seem to reach out and grab our hearts. Lord, I pray that those who call Cornerstone home those who are here this morning would grow in their desire to meditate on your word. To search the scriptures. Asking questions like simply why? Why is it that Timothy's interests in Paul's words weren't for the Philippians but they were for They were for Christ. What does that mean to me? How does that shape me? How does that change me? Father, would you motivate us to all the good deeds you call us to? To loving our brother in Christ. To loving the world who's yet to understand the grace you've extended to us. Lord, we sing these songs, as we always say, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. And we're not going to shut our minds off. We're going to think on these things. We're going to contemplate the words that we sing. We're going to contemplate the pictures of you that you draw in our mind's eye as we sing about you. Lord, might we grow by what we see of you and even the music this morning. Christ's name, we, we give you this time. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Why don't you stand with us? If you need to use the altar, please feel free. This is a open service. If You need to kneel where you are. You kneel where you are. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you want to come use the altar, if you want someone to pray with you, uh, we'll come pray with you. Uh, I'll be here up front. If you've not, if you've not experienced the love of Christ, if, if what what I'm talking about this morning is, is somewhat foreign, but it is compelling to you. Don't, don't harden your mind or your heart to that this morning. Okay? If you just have to stand where you are, I, uh, I challenge you to be courageous enough to do just that, but to say to God, God, if you have something to say to me, I'll listen. If you have something to say to me, I'll listen. Sometimes we just need to be that courageous. So you listen to God as we, as we sing. Let's go. Rusty, maybe you could help me out with a song, Lord, I Let Your Name on high. I know it's not on the set, but I just felt like maybe we should sing that one. Lord, I Let Your Name. I'm banking on the fact that everybody knows this, so even if we don't get the words up there... You'll be able to sing it, right? But uh, like we always say, we uh, we don't sing it just uh, just to sing it. So let it be a new song for you. Let it be a new song in your heart. Right?